0: Please remember, Masmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to
1: Yoga, Birth, Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Welcome to... Yoga. Yoga. Birth. Boss. Babies. Babies. And I'm your host.
0: Deb Blaschenberg.
1: And I brought my kids on to help me with the intro. So that was Sage saying, welcome to Yoga Birth Babies. And that was Shay saying my name, Deb Blaschenberg. So thanks for listening. So we're doing a little bit of a renewed podcast. We're revisiting some of our favorites. And this one is about induction with Dr. Rachel Reed. So we're taking a little family time. So I have my family helping me with some of my podcasting. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. It's truly one of my favorites. I felt like I learned a ton. And I hope that you do too. So enjoy it. Our renewed podcast of induction
0: with Rachel Reed. Take care. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork baby monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we have Dr. Rachel Reed, and we are going to talk inductions, a really important topic. Let me first tell you a little bit about Rachel. Dr. Rachel Reed is a senior lecturer and discipline leader in midwifery at the University of Sunshine Coast in Australia. She has practiced midwifery in a range of models and settings in the United Kingdom and Australia. Rachel's committed to the promotion of physiological birth and of women's innate ability to birth and mother. She's a writer and presenter and is the author of the Midwife Thinking blog site. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Absolutely. I love when I work with someone from Australia because we have to work our schedules around. I know it's early morning for you. It's night for me, but I'm glad that we have a chance to chat. Thank you. So I want to jump in. um, So granted, you're called, you're you're Dr. Reed, but you're also a midwife. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what inspired you to become a midwife.
2: Okay. Um, So I'd always had an interest, I guess, in sociology psychology health and when i had my first i had my first baby very young i was only 18 and when i was pregnant with my first baby i just read all of the how your body works and was just amazed and just got hooked um and my first birth was a typical first birth in that you know went in there thinking i'm going to have a natural birth and i did actually have a vaginal birth but just you know the was in the middle of all of this intervention and things, you know, they just got taken along on the wave of all of that stuff. And it wasn't until I had my second baby when I was 22, so still fairly young, um, and decided partway through that pregnancy that I didn't want to go back into that hospital system because I felt that I was unable to to speak up and advocate for myself. So I had a home birth with my daughter, and came after that just feeling so different. And that wasn't about the place that I birthed. That was about the care I'd got and my, you know, sense of self. And I just felt amazing. And I, I just, you know, when I need to support other women to have empowering birth experiences, whatever, whatever they happen to be. So that's how I did and I had to wait until my children were in school before I could really get that study underway.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I was a graphic designer in the meantime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then she got there. do you do totally side note are you the one that do, does the graphic design for your for your blog
2: oh yeah but that's just a like wordpress site so it's not very um and i can't use any of the applications now you know i have no idea how to use the okay, design I, I think your blog is great
1: so <laughs> I because i always remember oh, like you. oh i wonder who does that okay total side note, just because I've been on your blog. All right, so well, let's get back. So before we dive into medical inductions, can you talk a bit about the process of hormones, of spontaneous physiological birth, and how that differs from a medical induction?
2: Oh, goodness, yes. Um, so <laughs> so we're still, we're still just about understanding. We still have a lot to understand about how physiological birth works. So, you know, it's quite an exciting place because there's research and and you know, knowledge coming out just in the last ten years it's transformed, and um, what we know. So, before there's a lot of a lot of things have to happen to the body. So even before we go into labour, you know, we don't just suddenly have pregnancy and then whoop, we're in labour. And um, it's a continuous process from conception to you know even into the first year. It's all a continuous thing. So we have. Before labor, we have progesterone increases and relaxant increases to soften the bones to allow the pelvis to open for the baby. We've got increase in beta-endorphins, which are opiates. This is before labor, so they're getting ready to kind of relieve the pain in labor. We've got progesterone and beta-endorphins that work together to create that real inward sense, so women often feel just that they want to withdraw um, under those the action of those drugs. Prolactin, which is the mothering hormone, that increases. Um, and in terms of the structure so you've got the uterus that contracts all the time through pregnancy it's it, you know, practice contractions or whatever you want to call them but what happens as we get close to labour is the oxytocin receptors increase so we've got all these receptors being created ready to accept oxytocin in labour um, and the cervix changes so it ripens, it softens it becomes more anterior and thinner it doesn't become thinner with women who have previously had babies Um, and that's very complex lots and lots of hormones involved in that basically prostaglandin is one of the hormones involved in that but there's lots of others and the baby gets ready for labor so the baby's laying down fat increasing brain development ready for respiration etc and I guess the difference in induction of labor or preparing the body is that all we focus on is the prostaglandin so the all of the methods to get the body ready for an induced labor all about getting prostaglandins happening in the cervix not all the rest of it so then in early labor so the baby initiates labor um, you're still unsure about what mechanism that is it's, it's thought to be a hormone that once the baby is ready it's got enough surfactant in its lungs and it can breathe and it's mature it'll send a signal to mother and in response her oxytocin levels rise a little bit but what happens is her oxytocin receptors kind of switch on, ready for to respond to that oxytocin. Um, we've got, as labour is beginning, we've got beta endorphins again start to rise. We've got contractions that are now perhaps causing pain, um, which increase the beta endorphins further. So the woman kind of goes into this opiate state again, withdrawing in, but at the same time, if anyone who's been in labor knows, it's quite scary and exciting to begin with. So you've kind of got that adrenaline going, which counteracts with the beta endorphins. You've got this balance happening in early labor where you've got irregular contractions because your beta endorphins are rising and your oxytocin is rising, but your adrenaline's rising and it keeps knocking it on the head. And that's... Basically, we have evolved to do that like all mammals because that gives us our neocortex, our frontal brain is stimulated by the adrenaline. So we can go and find somewhere safe um, in order to labor. So it's an important part of the process. Um, The difference with induction is we skip that part. So we go straight from that early labor phase, which can last hours and hours, and for some women, days, straight into established labour. So you don't get that rising beta-endorphins. You don't have the high levels of beta-endorphins and oxytocin that you have once you get into established labour. So once you're in established labour, we've got really strong, powerful contractions that now you can add a bit of stress in there and it doesn't alter them. It won't stop the labour. It might slow things down, but it won't stop. And um, You've got increasing... Cortisol, beta endorphins, oxytocin—all you know—high. The woman has now completely withdrawn. And the opiates are so high that she's really inwardly focused. They often look stoned and kind of drowsy and sleepy, and and that's all part of the you know keeping them safe, withdrawn, and really focused on their instincts. They're really feeling what's going on inside and connected to their baby. Now, the oxytocin is produced in the woman's brain. This is this is an important difference between pitocin and oxytocin. So oxytocin is released in the mother's brain, bathes the mother's brain, and then goes into the bloodstream. And then it goes through the placenta into the baby's now it can get into the baby's brain because the mother has a um a much thicker blood brain barrier. So it means that any pitocin that's put into the bloodstream doesn't get into her brain, whereas oxytocin does because it's actually produced there. For the baby, it's the opposite. So the baby has a much thinner blood-brain barrier. So the mother's oxytocin goes through that blood-brain barrier into the baby's brain and primes the baby for its bonding behaviors. So if you the baby doesn't get those, there's differences in the breastfeeding behaviors and the, the way that the baby will act after birth. So this is kind of priming the baby to do the, the bonding. With Pitocin, I'm sure got very hard to say Pitocin, not Syntocin, because it's <laughs> Syntocin in Australia and the UK. So with Pitocin, it doesn't get into the maternal brain, so it doesn't bathe her brain and initiate all of these kind of instinctive bonding behaviors. And it actually passes into the baby's brain at very high levels. And we don't know the significance of that. There's, you know, there's... Debate around whether or not, because we know that it is probably switching on the oxytocin system for that human for the rest of their life, and it, whether it interferes with that, don't know. So that's a, a big difference between induced labour and non-induced labour. Is the oxytocin is very acts very differently in the brains of the mother and baby. It also can't respond to biofeedback. So you've got your contractions happening, and what you'll see in established labour, if it's spontaneous, is it will change. Contraction patterns alter depending on the baby, the mother, what's going on in the environment, um, and that doesn't happen with pitocin. We just get, you know, strong regular contractions and keep them keep them going.
1: Just since it doesn't pass into the brain, it doesn't go through, it, it, to my understanding, the uterus um, fibers can sense the pitocin, but it doesn't go to the brain. Does that inhibit the beta endorphins from releasing, or are they, are
2: they still being released? They'll still be released um, with pain. So if the woman, chances are she's experiencing pain even with an induced labour. So she will release her own end, um, endorphins. The difference is they won't reach such a high level because she won't have had that early labour. So a lot of the endorphin like, creeps up during early labour. So you mean, to some extent, the women I've looked after, the ones who have the really long pre-labours, they, you know, they're exhausted, but that doesn't matter because the body works when you're exhausted. Their pain levels are often a lot lower because they've got such a prolonged high levels of beta endorphins, whereas with induction, all very fast labors. So women who who have very fast labors experience this as well, they don't get those high levels of beta endorphins because they just go straight into that bam, 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 bam baby. That's really interesting.
1: I, because as a doula, I have seen that, and and even reflecting on my own births, my first one was very long. My second one was much quicker, and I actually feel like it was more painful. And as you say that, I'm like, I've seen that, and I've experienced it. I didn't, I didn't think about how the early labor bathes the brain with the the beta endorphins and primes the body to handle the discomfort. That's that's a new revelation. Thank you for for sharing that. <laughs>
2: And a lot of women who've had babies before and they have very fast labors even say that they didn't get into that altered state of consciousness because the oxytocin and the beta endorphins weren't, weren't at such high levels and they missed it. You know, I have one friend who you know, really kind of says, oh, I really missed that in my third <laughs> labor. I didn't go to that labor place. You know, labor land. That. Yeah.
0: Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at U.S. Border Patrol. Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and community safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio.
1: So, uh. in the United States, we do have a lot of inductions, and I feel like sometimes I hear... What I don't always perceive as full medically responsible reasons. Um, what would you say are some reasons a mother may need to be induced?
2: Mm, and this is this is a real controversial area because need and
1: okay. So and... let's go. For... <laughs> right, let's look. Let... Yes, yes, I know that's a very loaded question. That's why I say medically responsible. So why? What medically why medically might a mother need to be induced is one side of that question. And why Mm. might a mother be induced is the other side.
2: (laughs) Does that make sense what I'm trying to ask? Okay. That makes sense. So historically induction has been the kind of the rule that is being used is that an induction is used when the mother and baby would be safer if the pregnancy ends. So it's, you know, that this mother and baby are in some kind of danger, and it would be safer if this baby's outside. And so in terms of complications in pregnancy, that would equal that would be preeclampsia is one, you know, um, obstetric eustasis, the baby's at fairly significant risk as the pregnancy continues, uncontrolled blood sugars. Now, notice I didn't say Gestational diabetes, mm-hmm. because there's all kinds of controversy about whether that exists as anyway. But if a woman who has been diagnosed as having um, gestational diabetes has normal blood sugars, then she's at no greater risk of stillbirth than a woman who hasn't been diagnosed. So it's all about the blood sugars. So those are the kind of complications that that would mean that the baby would probably be safer to be born. Um, however, the vast majority of inductions are not done for complications. They're done for in, for variations to a pregnancy that increases the risk a little bit of certain things. Um, and I guess the most significant one is post-dates. So certainly in Australia, most inductions are done because women's babies do not know when their due date is and go beyond their due date. <laughs> they didn't get the memo. <laughs> they did not read that part of the notes, No. <laughs>
1: In in Australia, how far are you seeing women going post date before inductions discussed, or is it more depending on the care provider?
2: Um, well, it kind of shouldn't depend on the care provider. If it's a public healthcare system, there are guidelines, um, not necessarily evidence based guidelines, but there are guidelines. So usually, um, the usual is, and I think it's the same in the US, is that. The idea is to induce labour in the kind of usually the, with it about forty-one weeks before you get to the forty-two weeks. That's so most women have their labour induced at forty-one weeks. Now the idea that babies come at forty weeks is just made up. It does. It, this was made up in the seventeenth, eighteen, 1800s when men decided to put a because previous to that we just had a women would basically watch the moon and um, mark down their bleeds on a you know, stick, and then they knew that if they didn't bleed, then within 10 moons, they would have a baby, which would be 42 weeks. So that was the standard. And kind of, you know, when men developed science and decided that we needed a date, they just made one up as 40 weeks. So all of the research tells us that's not correct. And actually, women having their first baby on average will have their baby five days after, 40 weeks. And 75% will have given birth by 41 weeks. That's spontaneously 40 weeks, 41 weeks and two days, 75% of those women will have had their baby. For women who previously had a baby, and again, these are averages, um, they will give birth 40 weeks and three days, and 75% will have given birth by 41 weeks. So pregnancy is longer than we think it is. Um, and only 1% of pregnancies, if left, will go beyond the 43 weeks. So that's pretty rare. Um, so we're working with we've we've started the kind of we're working with a date that's not correct in the first place.
1: So how would you recommend a mother advocate for herself if she's feeling pressured to be induced for issues like suspected big baby or for passing her due date? Does she, do you think she can then bring in this evidence based research saying, "Hey, I passed my due date, but I'd like to see if we can go further." But the suspected big baby is something I hear a lot of students, even before their due date, 37, 38 weeks, are saying, oh, your baby's looking big. I don't think we should go past your due date. How can someone try to advocate not to be medically induced?
2: Well, I would argue that you don't need to provide evidence for your decisions. (laughs) Um, You could just tell you, you have bodily autonomy and you have the right to say, I'm not having that and you or not. not, the onus isn't on you to provide the evidence. However, I know women like to have evidence and it's important to, when I discuss these issues with women, it's really important to be honest about the research evidence because that is what's going to be given to them by care providers. You know, so for a woman who is going past her due date, there absolutely is an increased risk of stillbirth and that is why induction is offered. However, that increase is still less than 1%. So, you know, for women who get to 42 weeks, if you if you induce labor, then you reduce the stillbirth and perinatal death rate from 0.3. So it's 0.3 if you don't induce to 0.03. So it's a significant difference, but it's still very small in concrete terms so women need those numbers because what they'll be told by care providers is that it you know doubles your risk well kind of does but it's still very small Um, and the same goes for you know maternal age that's another common one Um, yes it does slightly increase your chance if you are over 35 but we're still talking less than one percent and the reasons for these increases are not known You know, that that isn't what the research tells us. We do know that babies with congenital abnormalities are more likely to be born late or early. So that might account for some of these babies. There is no evidence at all that placentas stop functioning. Um, There just isn't. In fact, babies continue to grow, which then, if they're getting enough oxygen and food, then... how? If they're not getting that, they'll not grow, but yet they continue to grow because they're bigger as they continue the pregnancy. And in terms of bigger babies, there's actually no evidence to induce based on the estimate of a big baby, and that's in guidelines. That's kind of an international standard. So care providers that are offering that are not even aligned with the kind of international standards in terms of induction. Um, There is conflicting research around big babies, firstly, it's very difficult to estimate a big baby. The scans are not accurate. Um, So that's the first thing. We know that there is a small amount of evidence that inducing reduces the chance of shoulder distortion, which is the baby getting stuck. However, induction itself is a factor that increases the risk of shoulder distortion because the baby doesn't have that space between contractions to rotate that it will have with a natural labour because the contractions don't slow down and space out at the end of labor to allow the baby to do that. Um, And also inducing because of a big baby increases the risk of perineal tearing for that woman. So that's a pretty easy one for women to argue with their care providers, because if they can just get hold of one of the international guidelines and standards like World Health Organization, they can argue that that's not even in alignment with guidelines.
1: Yeah, it is sad that we do. I do feel like I have to encourage my students to advocate for themselves with evidence-based research. That it does feel a little bit like a, a headbutting situation. It, they should have autonomy over their body, but unfortunately, the system we're working with doesn't allow for a, a fluid conversation too much.
2: So, if so, some... no, that's why I got into research in the first place. That's why I did my PhD and got into research. Was continually having to argue in the language of the system when I worked in the system and you know the language of the system is research and stats and which is interesting because that's not actually how practice works because if you look at guidelines they're not evidence-based and if you look at practice it's not evidence-based and yet that's the language we're supposed to be speaking.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally sideline. Remember, ACOG came out with some new guidelines that I still don't see actually practiced, even though ACOG saying, we support this. Like, simple things like don't hold your breath when you push or <laughs> um, giving women a longer window of time to, to push or, or labor, some hospitals are still very much on their guidelines, whether they get evidence-based research. So I find that, I find that frustrating. It's
2: the same here, and this is... And and it's because it's not, it's cultural based practice. So you can have in place guidelines that say spontaneous pushing, keep your hands off during the birth, which we have, you know, great guidelines in Queensland. And yet the local hospitals just disregard those and, you know, and individual care providers continue on doing what's culturally normal, which is to intervene. Yeah, it's a little frustrating.
1: Can you talk no. us through what a mother might expect if, she's, if her care provider is saying, okay, you are being induced, and maybe it's actually preeclampsia or some you know uh, intrauterine constraint or, or, um, or growth restriction. So she really is having a medically uh, supported reason, and she has to start from scratch. What would a medical induction look like? What might she expect? Okay, so the
2: first step, so try to mimic spontaneous. Um, labor as far as possible so the first step is to get the body ready for induction and that actually takes the longest so it will be an assessment of the cervix via a vaginal examination to see what the cervix is doing and assess the cervix as to the next step now if the woman's body's almost ready to labor then that's pretty easy because you've got to do less but if you've got a cervix that's still closed and not at all close to labor then the, the next step will be ripening that cervix so often a membrane sweep is done, and it's really interesting, because this is often not considered an induction method. A membrane sweep is an indu- anything that is trying to get the body to do something it's not already doing is induction. So a membrane sweep is performed where essentially this is aimed at getting prostaglandins happening in the cervix, which is one of the hormones that ripens the cervix. And it's, it sounds awful, sounds, I always imagine a chimney sweep when I think of them. <laughs> <laughs> but what you're actually doing is using – the care provider is using their finger to to kind of tease the membranes, the am, am, embryo – the amniotic sac away from the cervix to kind of irritate and release prostaglandins. And for one in eight women, that will actually work. It's probably the one in eight women who are ready to labor anyway. Um, the next kind of step, if that doesn't work, is to uh, to then either – Get the woman to produce more prostaglandins, so putting in a balloon catheter or a device into the cervix to irritate the cervix, or actually putting medical prostaglandin onto the cervix. So all of that is aimed at ripening the cervix, and that can take a long, long time. If a woman's cervix is nowhere near ready for labor, then it can take days because you're administering these medications, and then you're reassessing in hours and hours, and then you're possibly re-administering now, once the cervix is ripe, then in Australia UK, I don't think this is the same in the US, the amniotic sac will be broken. Is that right? Does that happen in the um, US?
1: Not all the time. Sometimes after cervidil or cytotec, I don't see the balloon too often, every now and then. So cervidil or cytotec, mainly cytotech, maybe the membrane sweep, then usually straight to pit, um, and then maybe the amniotic sac. I haven't seen that that step. Um, I try to encourage my clients not to get the water broken because I know pit's going to happen and I know they're concerned about... There's Some hospitals have a very strict rule, like 24 hours once the water is broken, baby needs to be out. So we try not to jump to that knowing that that clock starts. So I've seen, yeah, yeah I've seen inductions with uh, without that.
2: So it's, it's really interesting because I have never seen an induction with... <laughs> Intact membranes, because it's been part of the process. In fact, the only times I have, it's been because I've noticed that there's strange things happening with the contraction pattern on a CTG monitor, and I've asked to do a vaginal examination. And I've gone, "Oh, there's still some membranes there." <laughs> um, and the, I guess the theory around breaking them is that it makes the contraction pattern more effective. Well, it releases it's not- a,
1: at least it's more prostaglandin, so I see the point in it. But it doesn't always. I don't always see that happen here. No.
2: Oh, so that usually happens in over here, obviously doesn't in the U.S. Um, and then the next step is Pitocin. So Pitocin is the induction of labor. So that's where, because labor is orchestrated by oxytocin, Pitocin is used, which is a medical version of oxytocin. And it's really interesting I've had this discussion with numerous doctors who will argue to me, medical doctors, I'm talking, not doctors like me, um, will argue that it's exactly the same chemically. there is no difference between pitocin and and oxytocin which is true you look at it kind of on a microscopic level it is the same but it functions very differently in the body so with pitocin um the woman will be given an iv drip of that pitocin it is started at a very low dose because some women respond very quickly to it particularly women who've had babies before because they have more oxytocin receptors um and it's It's turned up usually every half an hour until there's regular strong contractions, which is usually measured in terms of 10 minutes. There'd be three or four contractions in that 10 minutes, no more. And then it's kept at that rate until the baby's born. So that's the kind of...
1: So, so that's starting from scratch. Now, what I also have seen is that a woman comes in, she's laboring, she's laboring, she's laboring, not making the progress that's expected, and then pitocin's introduced. Is that something that you see back in Australia too?
2: Yes, because the timeframes that are applied um, again were kind of were made up in the 1950s, based on 100 women. And even though we have lots of research evidence that those timeframes are not correct, for 50% of first-time mothers will not match those timeframes and that cervixes do not open one centimetre an hour. They do all kinds of interesting things, but eventually the baby comes out. And even though we know that, we carry on using these graphs that women get plotted on. So yeah, 50% of first-time women will not match that. So they'll end up having their labour augmented unless they you know, decline that.
1: Do you have any statistics? I, I'm guessing they'll like, they'll differ slightly between um, how many laborers have Pitocin in Australia. I'm, they're probably similar to the U.S., I'm guessing.
2: Yeah. Um, so Australia, 28% of women have their labors induced. So most of those will have Pitocin in that process. And 16% have their labors augmented. So in kind of medical terms, if a woman has already started labor and then you put up pitocin, it's called augmentation, not induction
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, so that's a lot of women, so that's you know we've only got thirty six percent of women who actually labour without pitocin or a you know plant and cesarean section, so spontaneous labor is thirty six percent in australia i I would guess it's similar
1: to the US. Uh, yeah. I don't know the stats. I just know that there are like, if you look at a board, so many of them say pit, 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 pit on them, like, you know, every, every room has it. What do you think the role of Pitocin should play in the labor? And this is not just like from scratch induction. This is augmentation as well.
2: Okay. Well, I think it should be used only when really Needed and at the lowest possible dose when it is used because it's actually a pretty dangerous medication. Um, I used to work with a consultant in the UK, and when you went to ask for him to prescribe pitocin, he would he'd be grilled. It would be you give me a rationale for me prescribing this deadly, and that's what he called it, deadly medication. And you had to come up with a really good reason for why you were wanting to, that prescription. Um, and we've forgotten that because so many women have it. It's just normal, and nobody can and yet most of the legal cases, particularly in Australia, around adverse outcomes in labour and birth are associated with syntosin on to the point where the manufa- Australia, Pitocin. Pitocin, <laughs> yeah, where the manufacturers will just pay out, so it never kind of hits the media it doesn't hit the courts because it's so it's a pretty dangerous medication, which is why there's so much monitoring. And why we need to be really careful with the use of it. Um, you know, the, the side effects are pretty severe and common. Um, can you talk about
1: those side effects? Because as I was saying, I see so many women, they may say, I don't want Pitocin in their birth plan and their discussion with their care provider. But I think if I remember from the movie Business of Being Born, which I know is a little dated at this point, I think there was like 80% of labors in a hospital will have Pitocin involved. That's a lot. but And it's it's just part of it. And you know, I don't even know if the women have that much consent i think it's just more told this is what we're going to start what are the side effects that women should be aware of that they may encounter with augmentation
2: and induction from pitocin so before you can administer a medication or an intervention to, to somebody you need to get informed consent which involves telling them the risks and you're right it doesn't it just doesn't happen it's you know amazing how I talk to student midwife teach at university so i can kind of hear what's going on in the clinical area they don't see women being talked to about the risks um so the risks are increased so this is what i'll tell you the risks according to the research okay um increased pain so we know that women who are having an induction are more likely to opt for epidural etc which makes sense because the contractions tend to be more powerful without and more consistent so they don't get those breaks in the contraction that you tend to get with a spontaneous labor. Um, hyperstimulation is extremely common. So it's, it's a real balancing act to get enough pitocin to make the uterus contract on the oxytocin receptors, but without stressing the baby out because with every contraction, there's a disruption in the blood supply to the baby in spontaneous labor as well. Now with, or with a labor with pitocin, you've got stronger contraction you can often get less resting phase so the uterus doesn't relax as much between the contraction and particularly with first-time mothers it's really difficult to get enough contractions to make the cervix open without stressing the baby out so the most common reason for cesarean section is the inability to get that balance right that In order to get your cervix to open, we need to stress your baby out, and we're not prepared to do that, so we end up doing a cesarean. Um, And, you know, for for a woman having her first baby, she's got a threefold increase in a cesarean section um, if she has pitocin. Not so much for a woman who's previously had a baby. and They usually get their babies out before the baby gets distressed, but for a first-time mom that's the case so also malposition of the baby and shoulder dystocia because the baby hasn't got that resting phase between the contractions as much to kind of really wriggle itself and what you'll see is babies and mothers doing amazing things in spontaneous labor that don't make sense until afterwards you'll have you know contractions almost completely stopping as the baby gets itself around into a good position. If the baby's presenting with its head tipped or in a you know a difficult position, then often the labour will slow down and you can do things to get that baby un, unwedged in, and get it into a better position. Um, you've got an increased chance of perineal tearing again, probably because the contractions don't slow down so you've got much faster birth of the baby so the perineum doesn't stretch as gently. Um, increased need for resuscitation for the baby and that's probably because in a spontaneous labour, as you're pushing your baby out, which is a more stressful time for the baby, and it's meant to get stressed because that helps it to breathe. So you need a little bit of stress at the end of labour. But the contractions, the big resting plate phases in between with a spontaneous labour. So the baby can kind of get that oxygen levels back up again before the next contraction when the head gets squashed. With an induction, then it tends to not do that. So the baby's kind of not getting that space and will come out more likely to need resuscitation, That's which is quite fun. It's actually, it's fairly easy to resuscitate a baby, but it's not something you want to be doing. You know, I'm not talking about you know, awful recess, I'm just talking about the baby needing a little bit of assistance to establish its breathing.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our US-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues.
1: Malposition is a big one for me. That's that's something I really work with with my students. Um, I I really care about and try to prepare the pelvis. And because, correct me if I'm wrong, but because the the pit's so strong and the the contraction's so strong, women often go hand in hand with an epidural. And if they're still, they don't have the feedback to how to wiggle their hips and help that baby navigate through. They're usually just going from one side to the other or just sitting on their back which is, again, going to create a sense of malposition for the baby, as well as soften the pelvic floor and the, and the muscles, which can also have a baby that's chin down, all set, kind of tip into more asynclitic. Mm-hmm.
2: What yeah, are your exactly. thoughts on that? So that just compounds everything. And the fact that women are more likely to have an epidural in labor just increases that chance that the baby's not going to be able to get into a really good position. Um, and yeah, that, that's when you have, I always say you have to work the hardest as a midwife or a doula with a woman who has had an epidural, um, because you should be doing lots of stuff to help that pelvis to move, because she can't, she's not instinctively feeling that she needs to get into this position or that position, that the instincts have been wiped out, so it's really down to, to us to help her. The other risks are hemorrhage, so you're more likely to hemorrhage if you've been induced, and that's possibly to do with, so if you put a lot of pitocin in there, once the baby's born, you have a you get given a bolus dose of pitocin to mask to um, kind of impersonate the natural surge of oxytocin you would get. But if those oxytocin receptors are completely saturated because you've had pitocin for a long time and they're all they're not going to pick up that extra pitocin, so they're not going to make a contraction happen. So you have a uterus that can't contract because it's saturated with pitocin, and the woman's more likely to bleed. There are other. Um, Smaller, kind of. They're more. There are. I'm not going to say they're smaller risks because the woman decides whether it's significant or not. But water retention, so a woman is will retain water in labour and the baby will as well if pitocin is going. What that means for the woman is just you know maybe edema, but for the baby it can mean a higher birth weight. So then when the baby's weighed again, and the baby's peed out all that extra fluid, it's then diagnosed as you know we're not getting enough milk and you know we need to. Supplement because this baby's lost too much weight. So it's really important if you've had an induction to to note that when you then weigh the baby again. Um, There's association with induction and difficulty with breastfeeding, establishing breastfeeding, which is probably to do with the oxytocin and how that functions, the brain, the behaviors of the mother and baby. Maternal depression is an association um, and again, those are about levels of oxytocin and the differences. That's kind of what the research is, is suggesting. And then there's very controversial research, which is very small. So I want to say it's an association because it's not a causation. But it really links into Michelle O'Donnell's theory about the, the baby's brain when it's bathed with oxytocin and um, pitocin at two higher levels. It alters the oxytocin set point for that baby. Is that um, a woman who has... Pitocin in labour is more likely to have a baby with behavioural problems like autism, and ADHD. Now I've been told not to say that, but um, that's what the research tells us. It doesn't tell us why, and I really think that those disorders are probably far more complex than just what happens at birth. But it's interesting, and um, you know, women need to have that information. And I, you know, outside of the research, it completely. Pitocin alters the birth experience, alters the physiology of the birth experience, and we are very physiology focused and focused on the body, but birth is actually a rite of passage for the mother and baby and has a significant effect on the woman's sense of self and how she feels long-term after the baby, and we kind of forget that because we get really focused on the physical stuff, Um, and part of that transition is all of that hormonal stuff that happens That, you know, women who have had a physiological birth and also had a birth that wasn't often say, oh, my God, I felt so different afterwards. You know, I personally experienced that. Looking back, it was it was such a different sense after I'd had my first baby. I became a mother. It was kind of this transition into mother. My second baby, I felt I stepped into my power as a woman. And that, you know, the hormones were just completely different how I felt afterwards. And that's not to say I didn't love my first baby. (laughs) I do love him. Um, And I say, you know, but it was a physical, it was like this real primal connection to my second baby that I had that I didn't have for the first. You know, she calls herself my oxytocin baby, which is, she really needs to not do in front of her brother. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so different. I think we forget about that real kind of work essentially mammals and with mammals if you take out physiological birth from the equation mammals just reject their babies we are humans and are clever enough to know that that's our baby and to initiate the oxytocin create the bond in some kind of way by breastfeeding or cuddling or being with the baby we can do that we don't reject our babies but we need to acknowledge that it does alter our physiology immediately after birth Um, and i think you know that's a a huge thing that needs to be
1: considered. Yeah. I love that you were, you have really concrete side effects because again, I think it's blindly accepted and the, the consent isn't really explained. So I'm hoping that people will hear this and take a pause before saying, yes, I'll, I'll have Pitocin. So the I guess the cascade of intervention that many childbirth educators talk about is quite real. You <laughs> know, So, you know, hemorrhage and postpartum depression, breastfeeding issues, higher chance of epidurals, cesareans, uh, stressing the baby out. So if a mother doesn't want to have Pitocin but she's facing some pressure, she needs to be induced. What are some natural induction methods that she may try
2: on her own? Mm, Well, um, natural induction is an oxymoron. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes, I can. Yes. (laughs) Because if if you are, if you, what you're saying is that this baby needs to be out in order to be safe, then using medication or using natural therapy or herb is doing the same thing. You're still trying to make the body, going
1: to labor when it's not
2: ready. All right, so let me rephrase it.
1: If a woman (laughs) is facing a medical induction for a reason, maybe it's her care provider has a set date, you're past your due date, next Monday we're going to induce, or I'm giving you five more days, your baby's looking big. So they might be facing that end date, but they don't want to start, they don't want to go in and have the cervidil or cytotec. They want to try to stimulate the prostaglandin and and do things on her own. Does that make sense, more of my question?
2: Oh, no, no, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it, it's just funny because when I work with women, I've mostly done home birth in the last seven years. Um, I've worked outside of hospital, and I will not actually care for a woman at a home birth who has used natural methods to induce because my, from my perspective, there is not enough research around the safety of these things and the difference between a natural induction versus a medical is that there isn't that monitoring around the baby and I have seen some pretty negative outcomes from natural induction Um you know things like blue cohosh or no no um, I'm not
1: I'm not a fan of the
2: cohoshes personally I'm thinking like acupuncture so so acupuncture so the research there is some good research around acupuncture um, also, there's not actually good research on any of this because pharmacology companies, you know, the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make money from funding research into natural <laughs> remedies. Um, so acupuncture can has been shown to increase ripening of cervix, not in induction of labor, but ripening of cervix. However, it also makes the labor longer. So that's what the research shows us, is that it can ripen the cervix, but women tend to have longer labors Um breast stimulation that there's some good research around that 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 is effective at causing contractions. Castor oil will work for women who previously had babies, but you know, pretty full on and nausea is very, very common with that. Even in primrose oil isn't doesn't it actually it actually hasn't yeah the opposite effect so you, it's, you're less likely to go into labor if you've been taking even primrose oil and you're more likely to have prolonged rupture of membranes and increased interventions during labor so that's worth worth knowing for women um, and into i mean what i tend to what i tend to promote is the situation you're talking about there'll be a lot of stress involved in that If you've got a care provider who's clearly not on your your wavelength and wanting to intervene and you feel that you need to go along with that, and there's going to be a fair bit of stress. So I think you know things like acupuncture, um, massage, Bowen therapy, all the all the things that are, and, and some aromatherapys all the kind of natural methods of relaxing the woman, get her will, adrenaline uh, down. Yes, and that's very different to trying to get labour contractions to happen. It's about trying to balance the body and the hormones so that if the body's ready to do that labor and it's just been holding off because of the stress, then it will actually start laboring. So I guess there's there's a real distinction between inducing versus promoting physiology. What
1: about sex? I was told that the semen has prostaglandin and can help ripen
2: the <laughs> cervix. Was this Is this not true? There is prostaglandins in, in semen, yes. Um, you'd probably need quite a lot in order to <laughs> the <this. laughs> Sausage, um, there isn't any. So one is theoretical, and also, you no. Know, orgasm makes the uterus contract, so there's because kind it's the oxytocin, theoretical yeah. the other reasons why that would work. However, there's no, unfortunately, no research to support that. <laughs> um, however, it's not going to do any harm. So, <laughs> and again, we're <laughs> looking for relaxation.
1: So, relaxation so it's not.
0: So
2: it's
1: Pardon? not that we're actually trying to induce labor, more trying to invite the body into being ready to labor and birth.
2: Yeah. It's more about getting the woman to just feel relaxed and connected with her body so that her body can kind of do what it's wanting to do. Okay,
1: good. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you said about the cohoshes. I actually have a blog where I say, if you're going to do the black or blue cohosh, work with the actual herbalist or something, because I'm not a fan of those. So
2: people listening, stay away from the cohoshes.
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: All right. (laughs) You've also got to consider that any of the, the herbs or even a membrane sweep, anything that kind of can make contractions happen because you know, blue and black can make uteruses contract. That, unless your body's ready to labor, then you're risking. Um, and this is one of the risks of the membrane sweep, which you know, I don't personally like looking after women after membrane sweep because I've seen it far too often where it causes these kind of irregular contractions that are not opening the cervix for a long, long time. So, you've got contractions for days with no actual change because the body's not ready and then you've got an exhausted woman who then goes into established labor with no, absolutely depleted and you know wanting an epidural immediately because she just has no reserves now and it's just this huge cascade that happens so it's about being really careful about and you know acupuncturists are great you can you can ask an acupuncturist can you give me a you know therapy to relax me rather than can you and i have seen you know moxibustion cause contractions um it's pretty effective but you've got to question what what the outcome of that is going to be
1: so yeah so is there anything on this topic because i know you're writing a book about induction is there anything that you think we haven't talked about that you think we should throw into this
2: podcast Hmm. no i think we've probably covered up lots (laughs) once we've finished
1: (laughs) well you can always have an email i'll put them in the show notes so if you don't mind would you please tell our community a bit about your blog which i think is fantastic as well as the book you're working on
2: Oh, okay, so my blog's a little bit neglected at the moment because I'm, I'm writing a book. So the blog is was really set up for for women and for student midwives and, and midwives and doulas and anybody interested. And it's not I don't post a lot. I tend to have a, a post about an issue like induction, and I'll just keep going back and adding further research as it comes out and editing it so it's kind of up to date, so that I can send students and women and other people there. To this is kind of an overview of the the research. So I've, I do that so I'm not one of these bloggers who blogs a lot um and the book i've been asked by um approached by an editor for pinter and martin it's a uk publisher to write a book about induction for their series which is um why it matters series which is about things like you know um baby wearing and sleeping and the, it's aimed at parents um to share the evidence to help them make decisions around birth pregnancy birth and and babies. So that's what I'm writing at the moment. So. When is that going to be out? Um, I am hoping to finish it by February and it should be out kind of next year at some point.
1: Okay. I'll keep an eye out for it. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and that we were able to organize your morning, my night, as well as I really enjoyed our discussion. I think, you know it's always, I love talking births. So I'm a little bit of birth geek, but I think our, I think the community really can have some great things to chew on and, and advocate for themselves. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for
2: inviting me. It's been fun.
1: Oh, good. Well, go enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Thank you. Right, bye. Okay. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.